Second Chronicles chapter 35, we're going to continue to take a look at, um, at the reign of Josiah and then uh, the end of, of the nation of Israel prior to them going into captivity. And as we do so, we're reminded once again that um, as we look at Josiah, he becomes such a great picture for us, uh, uh, a great revivalist, you know, a guy who's really focused on wanting to see uh, God's name lifted high. Not necessarily his name, not necessarily the the nation, but he wants the Lord. So at, you know, 16 years of age, he's starting a revival. He's tearing down altars. Uh, a few years later, as we pick it up where we are in uh, in Second Chronicles chapter 35, he's going to reinstitute the Passover. Now, they hadn't had a Passover in the nation since the time of Hezekiah. If you remember, Hezekiah had a son. His name was Manasseh. Because of Manasseh and a lot of the choices that Manasseh made, we see that the nation of Israel comes under judgment. God's judgment is going to, to come. It's just a matter of time. He reigns for 55 years. Then his son reigns uh, for around four years. And then Josiah comes. But he's only eight years old when he starts. So he reigns for about eight years-ish, something like that, until the Passover. So, what, uh, 68 years. Um, in case you're wondering, there's a Passover every year. So they go 68 years without celebrating it. Uh, it's like going 68 years without marking Easter. Without uh, considering God's deliverance of the people. So, when Josiah reinstitutes it a couple of chapters ago, we just saw Hezekiah do it. But it's been somewhere in, a, in the neighborhood of 68 years since, since that's been done. So when we look at chapter 35, we see Josiah's heart. He, he, he's moved to straighten out some issues in his life, to, to start to hang out in the house of God. They find the Bible, the Word of God to him. It, it leads him into a... a, a, a rededication of his life and then he brings the nation along with him as he continues to follow the Lord which naturally leads to them wanting to celebrate the Passover it's their greatest holiday holy day for the nation of Israel so it says so Josiah kept the Passover to the Lord in Jerusalem and they slaughtered the Passover lambs on the 14th day of the first month the first month on the Jewish calendar used to be the seventh month if you've read the book of Exodus, you'll know that on the seventh month, on the, on the 14th day of the seventh month, the Passover took place. The angel of death that flew over the, the nation of Egypt, and whoever didn't have their doorposts marked, well, the firstborn in those houses died. Those who had their doorway marked, the Lord passed over. And they were able the next day to to be turned free from their bondage, from slavery. And they would celebrate God's deliverance of the people every year at that time. But the Lord told them, now, tomorrow Pharaoh's going to let you go. No more will this be the seventh month. From now on, this is the first month. You mark all time by this month. So, Nisan became their first month. So, the month of Nisan, on the 14th day, the Passover lambs, were slain. 
We see the fulfillment of those things in the life of Jesus Christ, who on the 10th of Nisan was presented before the priests, and for four days he was examined, and on the 14th day of Nisan he was offered up on the cross. He becomes the Passover lamb for the nation. Three days later, at the celebration of first fruits, on the 17th of Nisan, the first fruit of the resurrection rose from the dead. All of those things fulfilling the feast days of the nation of Israel will take place the seventh month, the month of Nisan. So that's what he's telling us here. Look, on the seventh month, on the 14th day at the right time. Now you remember a few chapters ago, Hezekiah celebrated Passover, but he had to put it an extra month off. He did it on the second month instead of the first month because things were a little too hectic. And God gave him a pass on that. So here we see Josiah doing it at the right time. It said he set priests in their duties and encouraged them for the service of the house of the Lord. Do you remember? David set up 24 courses of priests to help in like a rotation. When you have hundreds of thousands of people coming with Passover lambs to sacrifice, you better have more than just one crew. Right? So David set up 24 courses so that they could... Keep it moving, keep rotating through, keep bringing the sacrifices. They, they had it streamlined so that they would be able to meet the needs of the nation on that day when they were celebrating Passover. And it's going to take them all day to do it. All day long, they're making those offerings. In verse 3 it says, And he said to the Levites who taught all of Israel, who were holy to the Lord, Put the holy ark in the house of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, uh, or the, the, I'm sorry, the house which Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, built. It will no longer be a burden on your shoulders and serve the Lord your God and his people Israel. So apparently at the time of Manasseh, Manasseh set up an idol inside the temple. The priest went in and took the ark out. The ark, you guys remember we talked about the ark a number of times. The ark is really two parts. You have the box. And then you have the lid. The box held all the failures of the nation of Israel. The Ten Commandments that were broken. Remember when Moses broke the Ten Commandments? Those broken tablets were placed in there. When the children received bread from heaven and they said, What is this? A bowl of that was placed in there, the manna. When Aaron, who was leading God's people as the high priest, and the people said, why should he lead us? We don't know if we want to follow him no more. There was this ruckus about who they were going to follow and whether or not they were going to follow Aaron. They rebelled against him. So they had all those who thought they should lead come with their staffs, and they left him in the tabernacle. They came back the next day, and Aaron's rod budded. His stick came alive and had fruit on it. And so God said... That's my choice. So they, they would place that into the ark. Each one speaks of a different failure of mankind or of the nation to trust God and to follow Him. They would place all that in the box. That was all the things that was wrong with the people. Put it inside the box. And on top of the box was put in the Greek what is called the hilasterion, the mercy seat. On the mercy seat were two cherubim facing each other with their wings touching over top. The very same picture we see in Genesis at the, at the gate to the Garden of Eden when the Lord said He put His cherubim there so that the people wouldn't come back in, so that Adam and Eve wouldn't come in and eat of the tree of life and live forever in a sinful state. 
So prior to them having eaten, they are redeemable. So there's still opportunity to redeem. But God said, I'll meet you, Adam and Eve, between the cherubim. Somewhere, as we read the book of Genesis, we discover that Cain and Abel had a sacrificial system. Where did that come from? Sacrificial systems not invented until Exodus chapter 24, somewhere in that, in that area. So that's a long time from creation. But somehow Cain and Abel knew. Where were they bringing their sacrifices? Exactly where God said, between the cherubim. When the ark was built, the two cherubim symbolized the place where God would meet His people and forgive their sins. Their sins in the box, the mercy seat on top. So the blood of the Lamb would be sprinkled on top. All of the ark, all of the parts and the pieces and the doors and the curtains and the rods and the, and the base plates and everything that was in the tabernacle that later became part of the temple, all of them point to Christ. The wood, the acacia wood that the cross was made of is what the box is made of. Acacia wood also speaks of that which is living. Um, and so it becomes a picture of the flesh, of life. And gold was always a picture of deity. So you have, you have humanity pictured by wood, covered, overlaid with gold, picturing deity. Humanity and deity into which would be placed all the failures of mankind. That's Jesus Christ. Fully God. Fully man came to bear our sins upon his body as he died on the cross. The mercy seat is the throne of God that sits over the top. If we pulled that mercy seat off, and the nation of Israel did this once, that the the Philistines got the ark and they opened it up and they played around it and nothing happened. And they put it on a cart and they set it out. And it came to one of the tribes of Israel and they opened it up and they died. What was the difference? Well, the, the children of Israel should have knew better. They took the mercy of God off of their failures. And what happens when you remove the mercy of God from your life? Judgment. Period. So, this ark, which came the center point in the Holy of Holies, when Manasseh had put up some kind of idol in that place, the priests had taken it out and they were, they were moving it from place to place. So Josiah said, hey, get the ark back in there where it's supposed to be. Get the ark back in there. We're going to have Passover. We're going to sprinkle the blood of the lamb and we're going to sprinkle the blood of the lamb on the mercy seat so that God will charge the sins of the nation of Israel to the Messiah who hadn't come yet. And so they move it back inside. And that's what we see him doing here in chapter 35. He puts it back in. says, don't have to move it from place to place anymore. Put it back in the Holy of Holies. Prepare yourselves according to your father's houses, according to your divisions, following the written instruction of David, king of Israel, and the written instruction of Solomon, his son. So he says, hey, we're going to do Passover just like we're supposed to do it. And you follow the instructions of King David and King Solomon. Who, who laid the groundwork for all of these things. And so, he said, Stand in the holy place, according to the divisions of the Father's house and your brethren, 
and according to the divisions of the father's house of the Levites. So divide up, get where you're supposed to be. So slaughter the Passover offerings and consecrate yourself. Prepare them for your brethren that they may do according to the word of the Lord by the hand of Moses. So Josiah says, hey, we're going to do it. He gets the priesthood ready. He gets the ark back where the ark's supposed to be. He calls for the Passover. He's excited. And all the people are, are, are going to come together to fellowship and to worship. But, but the people have not really been obedient to the Lord and walking with the Lord. And so I'm not sure that the people are prepared. That the people are ready with a lamb. That the people have been spending the year looking forward and pulling out the best of what they have. You know, they've kind of been following these crazy kings. And now Josiah's revival has been kind of getting things back on track. But I'm not sure they're ready. So Josiah opens up his own treasury and his own herds and his own stuff. And he says, here's what you need to sacrifice. And he provides for the people what he has. Look what it says. It says, so, verse 7, just Josiah gave the lay people lambs and goats from the flock, all for Passover offerings for all who were present, to the number of 30,000, as well as 3,000 cattle. These were from the king's possession. Now, if you want to have an idea how many people were there, if he gave 30,000 lambs, each lamb was for 10. So 10 times 30,000 is 300,000 people. And each lamb covered 10 people. They would share that meal together. If the family was bigger than 10, they'd have more than one lamb. So that was the concept. That was the idea. So Josiah, he says, hey man, not only does he want the people to walk with him, not only does he want them to celebrate the things that God's done in their past so that they can remember the grace of God that had got the nation to the point where they were at this point under Josiah, but he's going to provide for them to do it. He gives of his own. And the cool thing is, the people are all watching Josiah, right? Who's pretty young. And he's making this offering. So that's costing him money, 30000 I mean, you guys figure it out. It's, everything's relative. If you had 30,000 lambs, the cost today or the cost then doesn't make any difference. That's all relative. So... He gives exorbitantly. And not only does he give, not only does he give that, 3,000 cattle. Yeah. That's a lot of cattle, right? So he's, he's really pouring out of his own, of his own stuff to provide for other people to be able to worship, to be able to come and offer offerings. And then look at verse 8. And his leaders gave willingly to the people, to the priests, to the Levites, Hilkiah, Zechariah, and Jehiel, Rulers of the house of God gave to the priests for the Passover offerings 2,600 from the flock. So they gave another near 3,000. So now you have 330,000 people somewhere in that neighborhood that are gathered. And uh, 300 cattle. So his leaders, seeing him and his generosity toward the people, then, then that begins to, to, they just follow the example. They follow that example of Josiah's heart that is, is toward the Lord. You see, Josiah is, is showing evidence of what Paul talked about in Philippians. Paul said, hey look, you guys want to start matching up who's got most of what. 
I got a lot of stuff, but as far as I'm concerned, it's all garbage compared to the knowledge of Jesus Christ. To know God was so important, he didn't care about any of that stuff. He didn't care about his pedigree. He didn't care about his degrees. He didn't care about the opportunities for financial success that he had had earlier in his life. That didn't matter to him. What mattered to him was knowing God. I want to know God more. So he said, I'll gladly give up all this stuff. Gladly give it up. And what do you see Josiah doing the same thing, right? When our heart is toward the Lord, then the stuff in this life holds less sway in our life. We're not bound up by the things that we have. And we start to let those things go. We let them go. I'm not saying, I'm not talking about being irresponsible in, in debts and things we owe. I'm just saying it, it just, just becomes a, not a priority anymore. I remember when, when I really started going after the Lord. I'm 30 years old. I had a lot of goals. Had to have certain things. Living in California to keep up with the Joneses. Had to have a house. Had to have, we had two cars. Had a couple of boats. I, I, you know, for, for where I was at, I, I had a, um, I don't know, a modicum of, of success. And things were looking pretty good. And then, and then I, I started to fall in love with Jesus. And little by little, all that stuff went away. I sold the boats and I got, cause I, I no longer did I want to work 90 hours a week in order to keep up with everybody. So I started letting go of hours and replacing those hours with Bible college classes. That took a long time. Five, six, seven, some, some, if I, if I think too hard about it, it'll, it'll depress me how long it took me to finish Bible college. But <clears throat> I was taking one class at a time. I, I couldn't take like six classes. I still had to do all the other stuff, you know. My family still had this thing. They liked to eat. And so I needed to make sure that that was still a possibility. But I didn't want all the overtime no more. I didn't want all that other stuff. And it, what became less important to me. All those things. That's what Josiah, Josiah's got all this stuff, all this money, all this gold, but really it doesn't matter to him as much as the Lord. And when the people see that, that attitude starts to filter through them too, his leaders. The people who are, are following him and coming alongside. So they, we see them doing the same thing. Look at verse 9. Also, Conaniah and his brothers Shimei and Nethanel and uh, Hashbiah and Jael and Josabab. Uh, the chief of the Levites gave to the Levites for Passover offering 5,000 from the flock and 500 cattle. So there's a, another group of guys given, right? So you got people, they just realize that if they fall in love with God, they lose the things that they loved in the world. They naturally stop loving those things. And they begin to use those things for the furtherance of the name of God. Now, it's just natural flow. It's not any different. Jesus said, you cannot serve two masters. It's one or the other. So, give it to me. so he, he, in fact, he calls us. The Lord said, any of you who will not forsake all, will not fit for my kingdom. Forsake. Forsake doesn't mean that God's coming with a tally sheet and expecting you to give it all. Forsake means that attitude should happen in your, in your heart and life. Anyway, it's just not on the priority anymore. That's not the goal anymore. 
And that change is filtering down through the leadership to the people. Look at verse 10. So the service was prepared, and the priests stood in their places, and the Levites in their division, according to the king's command. And they slaughtered the Passover offerings, and the priests sprinkled the blood with their hands, while the Levites skinned the animals. Everybody did their part. Everybody did their part. The priest was to sprinkle the blood, the Levites to skin and divide the animals. Each family had what they had. It's like a giant pit barbecue Passover was. So they'd cook the lamb, the priest got a portion, the people got a portion, the Lord got a portion. The symbol was we're communing, it's fellowship, we're having something in common together. You, I, the priest, the family, and the Lord. With, you know, 340, 50,000 people together. That's a big barbecue, right? So they're all moving toward that goal. It says, And they removed the burnt offerings that they might give them to the divisions of the Father's houses, of the lay people, to offer to the Lord, as it is written in the book of Moses. And so they did with the cattle. So all the, what he's telling us over and over again is they followed the directions of what the Bible said. They did what the Bible said, exactly how the Bible said it. They offered it. They gave the burnt offerings. They divided the offerings between the priests and the families. And so on and so forth they went. In verse 14, or in verse 13, it says, Also they roasted the Passover offerings with a fire, according to the ordinance or the law, the Bible. But the other holy offerings they boiled in pots and cauldrons and pans and divided them quickly among the lay people. So everybody got the division of what they offered. And afterward they prepared portions for themselves, for the priests, because the priests, the sons of Aaron, were busy in offering burnt offerings and fat until night. Therefore, the Levites prepared por- uh, portions for themselves and for the priests, the sons of Aaron. So the priests are hopping. You guys get the picture? Hundreds of thousands of people bringing sacrifice. Priests don't have a chance to take a break. They're in several divisions. They're making the offering and they just keep working, sprinkling the blood and doing the offering, going to the next one. And somebody else, the Levites, they're coming around and they're pulling the portion for the priests so that when the priest gets a break, here's his portion. He can come, take his break, eat, sustain himself. Somebody else from one of the other divisions is currently doing their part. And then when that breaks over, he's back in it again from morning to night, all day long. Passover was busy. It's funny because our mindset's a little different. See, Passover was all about being busy and focused and working and seeing the Lord and drawing near Him. And our focus oftentimes on holidays is to spend time with ourselves and our families, not necessarily spending a whole day serving God. But that's what they did. All day long, into the night. That's a full day, man. Full day of serving, a full day of, of plugging in. He goes on and says, Then the singers and the sons of Asaph were in their places according to the command of David. Asaph, Heman, Jeduthun, the king's seer, also the gatekeepers were at each of the gates. They did not have to leave their position because their brethren prepared portions for them. So the guys who are at the gates, guarding the gates, the doorkeepers, making sure everybody stays orderly, things are going like they're supposed to, the musicians who are playing all day and into the night, 
And you still have other guys coming around, dividing up the portions of the sacrifices that were given, and bringing them to those guys so they don't have to leave. They don't have to, to get off of their post. They can continue to do the things that they're doing for the Lord, and they have the sustenance that they need from the Passovers that people were bringing to give them the strength they need to keep going. That's a busy day, man. That's a lot of stuff. A lot of things happening. A lot of, a lot of, a lot of people joining in, right? That's not just, just a handful. That's not the 10%, is it? That's a lot of people working. It's a lot of people helping. A lot of people staying focused. So all the service of the Lord was prepared the same day to keep the Passover and to offer burnt offerings on the altar of the Lord according to the command of King Josiah. And the children of Israel who were present kept the Passover at that time in the Feast of Unleavened Bread for seven days. Oh, man. You thought the next day was a day off, right? Seven days, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And there has been no Passover kept in Israel like that since the days of Samuel the prophet. That goes all the way back to the Judges. That's before David. That's before Solomon. Josiah kept such purpose following what God's Word taught. He did it exact. And they said that nobody from the time of the judges to Josiah had done such a good job in having it all organized and run just so. Just so. Man, it's pretty cool. It says... uh, None of the kings of Israel had kept such a Passover as Josiah kept. With the priests and the Levites and all Judah and Israel who were present and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. In the 18th year of the reign of Josiah, this Passover was kept. 26 years old. He reaches the, the peak, I guess, of his revival celebrated in the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So, they have the celebration Things are going good. But when is man most susceptible to a stumble? At the top or at the bottom? At the top. Josiah is at the top, man. Things are going good. The nation's looking good. People are, are making choices to follow the Lord. So look at verse 20. After all this, when Josiah had prepared the temple, Nico king of Egypt, came to fight against uh, Carchemish by the Euphrates, and Josiah went out against them. So let me give you the, the history. You remember Assyria was the nation who took the northern kingdom. So it's about um, not quite 130 years, something like that, since the nation up north had fallen. Assyria was the powerhouse, man. They were the, the king of the block. But they were waning, and Babylon was rising. Nebuchadnezzar's dad, Napopolassar, was, was leading the, the nation of Babylon, who had already pushed off the restraints of Assyria. So now Assyria didn't control Babylon anymore. And they were beginning to reach out and do battle to, to take uh, um, nations around them. So Assyria, hadn't been beaten already one time by the Babylonians, falls back to Carchemish, and there Pharaoh Necho comes up to help Assyria. He wants to help Assyria support 
of Syria against Babylon. Now the assumption is that Josiah, who's no friend of the Assyrians, sees that Pharaoh Necho is going to go help, and he wants to help out Babylon. So he decides, I'm going to go take on Pharaoh Necho before he can get up there, so that the, so that the two combined forces don't end up uh, taking Babylon. So he grabs his army, puts it together, and takes off. Man, he's going to do battle with, with Pharaoh Necho. So as he's coming near him, we're, we're in about the year 609. <clears throat> so it says, uh, Josiah went out against him, but he sent messengers to him. So Pharaoh Necho sent messengers to, to Josiah and said, What do I have to do with you, king of Judah? I have not come against you this day, but against the house with which I have war. For God commanded me to make haste, refrain from meddling with God, who is with me, lest he destroy you. And verse 22 says, Nevertheless, Josiah would not turn his face away from Nico. Now, the question is, how do you know? How would Josiah know that Pharaoh Necho really was speaking for God? Well, he's a pagan. He, he, he's not really a worshiper of God. The Bible tells us in the New Testament that we have to, as men and women who follow Jesus Christ, be willing to allow every man to be your teacher. You have to be able to receive when God speaks. Sometimes... The Bible tells us God even speaks through donkeys, right? We all remember the story of Balaam, right? And how the donkeys spoke through Balaam. Well, still, you know, gosh, I don't really know. How do I know? How do I know when I'm, I'm going to go to battle and I'm gonna, I, I think I'm doing the right thing and I get there and, and Pharaoh says, look, God told me to go up here and fight and, uh, so you shouldn't try to stop me. And, uh, Josiah doesn't listen to him. I probably wouldn't have listened to him either. It's interesting, though, when you back up a little bit. On one uh, early Sunday morning after the crucifixion, a bunch of women were coming to an empty tomb. And one of them came upon a gardener, right? Where have you taken him? What have you done with my Lord? She didn't know it was Jesus until he spoke her name. Mary. Or two disciples walking down the road to Emmaus. A stranger comes up alongside them and begins to speak to them about the wonderful things of the Lord, revealing to them why the Messiah should suffer and die as they're walking along the journey. When they get to the top of the journey, at the end of the journey, they invite Him to come in. They don't know who He is until they ask Him to say a blessing over the meal. And perhaps he lifts the bread over his head and breaks it like he did at the Last Supper and makes a blessing over it. And then he's gone. They never knew it was Jesus. The disciples are out on the Sea of Galilee. The Lord had told them to go to the other side. Last time there was a storm, they panicked and didn't know what to do. So this time, they're still working at the oars and trying to get across. And they look up and they see a ghost, right? Or what they think is a ghost walking on the water. They didn't know it was the Lord. 
I think we don't always have the ability to understand, to recognize always whom God is speaking through. I remember one time I just taught a a Wednesday evening service in California. We had two Wednesday evening services. I had just finished the first one. An older fella from the first service came up and and told me everything that was everything that was wrong with the with the sermon I had just gave. Why it was lame. Why it was you know no good. And he came all the time. And him and I had talked a, a number of times. But anyway, he he decided to let me have it that day for for the sermon. And I remember when he was first telling me getting mad. You know, like, boy, who are you? And then somewhere in the back of my head, the still small voice just said, how do you know that's not me? So I listened to what he said. And I did what he said. Made some changes that, I, that are still changes I, I have that I still follow today. There's other times people have called me and just random guy, I'm driving down the road, get a phone call, somebody wants to share something with me. They're sharing a dream. Maybe they're, they're sharing a vision that they had. Maybe they're sharing a dream. Uh, um, um, whatever. And I'm going down the road and they have no idea while they're sharing and while they're talking about all this stuff that they're speaking right to me, to my heart. They don't know. I could just say, ah, oh, these people are crazy. I shouldn't listen to them. Should I? Here's what the Bible tells us, guys. In the in the book of James, flip over to James chapter 3. James chapter 3 verse 17. James 3:17 says this. But the wisdom that is from above from the Lord is first pure, then peaceable, Gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. The wisdom that is from above is first pure and peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy. What was in Josiah's heart? War. Was it a war that God had called him to? No. Did he... Go ask the priest like he had before about what he should do. No, no, he just was pretty sure this was the right thing to do. Here's what he doesn't know. God is bringing Pharaoh Necho and the king of the Assyrians to the end of their nation in the battle against Napa Pelasar before Babylon takes over. Nico's going to his destruction. And Josiah's trying to stop him. He never asked God. He just assumed he knew what God's plan was. But wisdom is from on high is pure and peaceable. Does that mean God never sends us to war? No, of course. We know that God does send us to war. But that's God sending us, right? Not just us trying to decide, what, what should I listen to? This guy or that guy? He says, wisdom is from above, is pure and peaceable and gentle and willing to yield. Well, let's look at it like this. You guys remember King David? King David had a 
a lot of problems in his family, right? He had a son rape one of his daughters. Uh, then his other son, who was the brother of that daughter, killed the brother who had raped her, and that caused a lot of problems. And then he ran away to stay at his uncle's place. Eventually he comes back. His name's Absalom. And Absalom was a pretty sly guy, you know, one of David's kids. He built a rebellion against his dad that uh, was something that was just under the radar, you know, until all of a sudden there it was. Here's this rebellion and these people are coming and they're coming to take Jerusalem. And they're going to, they're going to, so David's get just a few moments to decide what he's going to do with his army. Take his army and he can set him out there and meet him in the field of battle. You know what David did? packed his bag and he said look if God wants Absalom to have the country he can have it and he walked out the whole time he's walking out there's a dude on a hill over there and he's hollering at him what a loser he is oh David you're so dumb you're so lame I knew God was going to kick you out you no good for nothing and Abishai one of David's mighty men said David, will you let me go over there and cut that guy's head off? I'm so tired of hearing from him hollering at you. And David said, How do you know that guy over there not speaking the mouth of God to us? He says, No, Abishai. I'm going to hear him. And he wouldn't do anything. He wouldn't fight. He wouldn't make a plan until he talked to the Lord. That's wisdom that's from on high. Pure, peaceable, willing to yield. Funny because a lot of times when I talk to husbands and wife and we're trying to deal with problems, everybody wants a referee. They want me to wear a black and white shirt, bring a whistle, and blow a whistle in the middle of counseling and say, Okay, the wife's right. The husband's wrong. Let's hear the next problem. And they say something, blow the whistle. Okay, that time the wife's wrong. And the husband's right. Now, I don't know why they want that, because that's the dumbest thing I ever heard of in my life. But that's what they want. All the time. I just want you to tell me I'm right, or tell him he's wrong, or tell her she's wrong. Tell me I'm right. So here's what I like to say. You know, God doesn't really care which one he is right. And I don't really think it matters. What God wants to know is which one of you is willing to yield. It takes two people to fight. One standing for their rights, the other standing for theirs. Jesus came and laid down his. And then he said, come and follow me. It doesn't matter who's right doesn't matter what they said or what they didn't say or what they're the Lord's looking for someone who's willing to yield until God says do something different willing to yield husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church which one of us in the church was worthy of Jesus sacrifice when he gave his life huh so I guess that love doesn't matter whether or not they're worthy. And for the wives to respect their husbands, which which person was worthy? None. 
It's not about earning your respect or the right. It's just about laying yours down. You have two people who care more about the other person than they do about themselves. You have peace. You got perfect relationship. Well, you got something to strive for, right? Something to reach out after. Josiah, he was so sure he was right, he was willing to die for it. So he did. He poked his nose in a battle that was not his to fight. Look what the word says. So, he sent messengers to him and said, What have I to do with you? Don't make more war with me. I'm, I'm doing what God wants me to do. Nevertheless, verse 22, Josiah would not turn his face from him, but disguised himself so that he might fight with him. And did not heed the words of Nico. Listen, what did it say? And did not heed the words of Nico from the mouth of God. Uh oh. Can every man be your teacher? Man, I, when I, it's funny. When I was in Bible college, I was sure I was never wrong. Now I'm not sure I'm ever right. But, you know, the, the idea that is this person, is it possible? If I don't know, I mean, if it goes against this, it's pretty obvious, right? Somebody speaking blasphemy against the Word of God, I know that's not God speaking. He speaks in conjunction with what his word teaches. But <clears throat> if they're speaking, if they're saying something, don't go, do go, that's cause to say, Lord, that from you? Until I know different. Is it wisdom from on high? Is it pure? Is it peaceable? Is it willing to yield? So, he came to fight in the Valley of Megiddo. You guys all know that place, right? The Valley of Megiddo. Valley, Har, Har Megiddo, oh, we call it now Armageddon. Same valley, you'd be amazed how many battles been fought there. Napoleon said it was the world's most perfect battlefield. So in Armageddon, at the valley of Megiddo, archers shot King Josiah. The king said to his servants, take me away, I'm severely wounded. His servants therefore took him out of the chariot and put him in a second chariot that he had. They brought him to Jerusalem, so he died and was buried in one of the tombs of his fathers. And all Judah and Jerusalem mourned for Josiah. Jeremiah, the prophet, he lamented for Josiah. And to this day, all the singing men and singing women speak of Josiah in their lamentations. They made it a custom in Israel, and indeed they are written in the laments. Now the rest of the acts of Josiah, his goodness according to what was written in the law of the Lord, and his deeds from first to last, indeed they're written in the book of the kings of Israel and Judah. King Josiah is gone. He's got three boys. Some say four. I'm not sure if the fourth one is his boy or his brother. Um, we don't know for certain, but when we come to chapter 36, we see the end. Of the nation of Judah. So look what happens. And the people of the land took Jehoahaz, the son of Josiah, and made him king in his father's place in Jerusalem. He's 23 years old when he became king, and he reigned three months. Wow. That's not very good, right? What happened to him? The king of Egypt deposed him. 
Josiah went to fight Nico. Nico killed Josiah. Then he came and he set up a puppet kingdom and he took control of Judah. So now Judah is under the control of Egypt. Uh, it says that he deposed him at Jerusalem, imposed on the land a tribute of 100 uh, talents of silver and a talent of gold. And the king of Egypt made Jehoahaz, his brother, Eliakim, king over Judah and Jerusalem and changed his name to Jehoiakim. And Necho took Jehoiahaz, his brother, and carried him off to Egypt. So Jehoiahaz, who was set up for just a few months, gets taken as a slave back to, to Egypt with Necho. Never see him again. Then they set up Jehoiakim. And now he's paying taxes, tribute to Egypt. Because Josiah decided to go fight Necho. So he's paying tribute to Egypt. Jehoiakim was 25 years old. When he became king, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem, and did evil in the sight of the Lord his God. This is not a good guy. He's one of Josiah's kids, but he, he, he made choices that, that led him not to be one of God's uh, special people. In fact, Jeremiah talks about him. Look, if you just want to flip over to your right, to Jeremiah, he's past Isaiah. Go to Jeremiah 25, and we'll just give you some of the highlights of of uh, this particular king. In Jeremiah 25, it says, The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah concerning all the people of Judah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, which was the first year Nebuchadnezzar was king of Babylon. So Nebuchadnezzar's now in Babylon. He's ruling. <clears throat> and Jeremiah the prophet spoke to the people of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying, from the thirteenth year of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, even to this day, this is the twenty-third year in which the word of the Lord has come to me, and I have spoken to you, rising early and speaking, but you have not listened. And the Lord has sent to you all His servants, the prophets, rising early and sending them, but you have not listened nor inclined your ear to hear. They said, Repent now, everyone, of this evil and this evil way and evil doings that dwell in the land of the Lord, he has given to you and your fathers forever. Do not go after other gods, serve them, worship them. Do not provoke me to anger to the works of your hands, and I will not harm you. Yet you have not listened to me, says the Lord, that you might provoke me to anger with the works of the hands to your own hurt. So he's, they're following the other gods, chasing down the, the, the other gods. We look at Jeremiah 26, the next chapter over. Just turn the page in Jeremiah chapter 26, picking it up in verse 20. It says, Now there was also a man who prophesied in the name of the Lord, Uriah the son of Shimei, Kirjath Jerim, who prophesied against the city and against the land, according to the words of Jeremiah. And when Jehoiakim the king and all his mighty men and all the princes heard his words, the king sought to put him to death. But when Uriah heard it, he was afraid and, and fled and went to Egypt. And Jehoiakim, the king, sent men to Egypt, El-Nathan, the son of Achbor, and other men who went with him to Egypt. And they brought Uriah from Egypt, and brought him to Jehoiakim, the king, who killed him with a sword and cast his dead body into the graves of common people. So he killed the prophets. He's worshiping other gods and killing the prophets. And then Jeremiah 36, Jeremiah talks again. 
It says, And when they went to the king into the court, they stored the scroll, the chamber of Elishamah, the scribe, and told all the words in the hearing of the king. So the king sent Jehudi to bring the scroll, and he took it from Elishamah, the scribe's chamber, and Jehudi read it in the hearing of the king and the hearing of all the princes who stood by. Now the king was sitting in the winter house in the ninth month with a fire burning in the hearth. And it happened when Jehudi had read three or four columns that the king cut it with the scribe's knife and cast it into the fire that was on the hearth until all the scroll was consumed in the fire that was on the hearth. They were not afraid, nor did they tear their garments, the king nor any of the servants who heard all these words. So he also took the word of God from Jeremiah and burned it. He didn't care about any of the things. This is Jehoiakim. He's ruling and reigning for 11 years while Nebuchadnezzar is setting up his kingdom. It says, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, in verse 6, came up against him and bound him in bronze fetters to carry him off to Babylon. In verse 6, that's now 605 B.C., the first captivity has taken place. Daniel just went to Babylon. That's the verse. That's the time period when Daniel goes to Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar also carried off some of the articles of the house of the Lord to Babylon and put them in his temple at Babylon. Now the rest of the acts of Jehoiakim, the abominations which he did, which were found against him, they're written in the book of the kings of Israel and Judah. And Jehoiakim, his son, reigned in his place. Now Jehoiakim was eight years old. Now it's probably a scribal error. Um, There are other manuscripts that read 18. Jehoiakim was... uh, 8 or 18 years old when he became king. He reigned in Jerusalem 3 months and 10 days and did evil in the sight of the Lord. It says, And at the turn of the year, King Nebuchadnezzar summoned him and took him to Babylon with the costly articles of the house of the Lord and made Zedekiah, Jehoiakim's brother, king over Judah and Jerusalem. So that is Jehoiakim's uncle who is now placed on the throne. This is about 597 B.C., It's the second captivity, the second group of people that go to Babylon. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. He did evil in the sight of the Lord his God, and did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet, who spoke from the mouth of the Lord. He also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar, who had made him swear an oath by God, but he stiffened his neck, hardened his heart against the turning to the Lord, the God of Israel. This is about 586 B.C. This is the end. Nebuchadnezzar comes back in 586, destroys the temple, and burns Jerusalem to the ground. No city left. Moreover, all the leaders of the priests and the people transgressed more and more according to all the abominations of the nations and defiled the house of the Lord, which he had consecrated in Jerusalem. Now, all the while, Jeremiah is telling the people, here's what God says. God says, stop fighting, stop rebelling, lay down your arms, live in peace, let the Babylonians take you and deport you if they want to, or let them let you stay here, just live at peace, stop rebelling, and you'll live. And they would not stop fighting. Jeremiah spoke to them over and over again, they wouldn't listen, they didn't listen to him. Jeremiah's whole period of time that he's reaching out to the people, they don't listen, And so nobody stops. They keep fighting until they're all destroyed. And then, the the funny thing is, they're all destroyed. There's just one remnant, one small remnant, and they flee to Egypt. 
And Jeremiah is given the opportunity. Jeremiah, you're an old man. Live in peace. You can come live in Babylon. And we'll set you up, Nebuchadnezzar says. And we'll take care of you because you've been a man of God. And Jeremiah says, no, them people over there are bullheaded and they won't listen. And if I don't go with them, who's going to tell them? So Jeremiah went with them. And he died with those people. The same people who never listened to him his whole life. The same people who would ignore him. Who wouldn't hear. Jeremiah said, if I don't go with them, nobody's going to tell them. So he went. And he died in Egypt with them. Spent his whole life trying to reach out to a people who wouldn't listen to him at all. Wanted to quit a couple times. Give up. Told God once, I quit. I've had it with these people. But he said, I couldn't stop. I told God I quit, but my bones hurt within me. I gotta, I gotta tell him. I gotta, I gotta tell people about the Lord. And so he did. When Jerusalem is burnt right here, the Bible says Jeremiah sat up on top of a hill overlooking Jerusalem and wept and wrote lamentations. As he cried, as people died who never had to die. All because that can't be God's voice. It can't be God telling us not to fight. God would want us to fight. Except it was. It was God talking to him. So, it says, uh, The Lord God of their fathers, in verse 15, the Lord God their father sent warnings to them by his messengers rising up early and sending them because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked the messengers of God, despised his words, scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people till there was no remedy. It is possible to go against God to the point where God's done with you. That's where these people got to. You look at the Exodus, the children of Israel who came to Sinai. God did all these miracles for. They came to the very border of the promised land. They sent in 12 spies. 10 spies came out and said, if we go in there, those people will whoop us. There's no way for us to go in there. Two spies came out, Joshua and Caleb, said, what are you talking about? God said, go, and I'll give it to you. The people believed the 10. Which one, the ten or the two, were speaking for God? The two. Well, God said, since you're not listening, then you'll wander around in the desert until this generation is gone and there's a generation that comes who's willing to follow me. So it was the next generation that went into the promised land. It's possible to come to the end of God where God says, look, we can't move forward. You don't even know when I'm talking to you. We have such a great advantage because we have His Word on our lap in the back of the chair in front of us. we got God's Word all over the place. Every Walmart has God's Word. Most thrift stores you can get a couple of good Bibles out of. It's everywhere. It's everywhere we can, we can have what God says. But they wouldn't hear what God said. They wouldn't listen. And they find themselves fighting against the Lord. So therefore... He brought against him the king of the Chaldeans, that's Nebuchadnezzar, 
who killed their young men, the sword in the house of the sanctuary, who had no compassion on the young man or virgin, on the aged or the weak, he gave them all into his hand. All the articles from the house of God, great and small, the treasures of the house of the Lord, that's the Ark of the Covenant, everything, um, the treasuries of the kings and the leaders, all these he took to Babylon. Then he burned the house of God, broke down the wall of Jerusalem, burned its palaces with fire, destroyed all its precious possession. And those who escaped from the sword he carried away to Babylon, where they became slaves to him and his sons until the rule of the kingdom of Persia. That's a long time. So, three separate times Nebuchadnezzar came to Jerusalem and said, Stop fighting, be good citizens and live. And God, through the prophet Jeremiah, said, Stop fighting, be good citizens and live. And they didn't listen, so everyone died. Everyone died on that battlefield. Well, look what the Word says. The Word says, then, to fulfill the Word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed her Sabbaths. And as long as she lay desolate, she kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. There were 70 years of Sabbath that the people never kept in the land. When they first came into the land, God said to the people, You work the land six years. On the sixth year, I'll give you a bumper crop. That bumper crop will carry you all the way through the seventh year. So you let the land lay fallow the seventh year, and then come back and plant the eighth. And the people didn't do it for 490 years. So God said, well, since you've disobeyed and you haven't done this, this is how long you'll be in captivity. The land has never got a break. So God said, I'm going to give the land a break for 70 years. So they were in Babylon for 70 years. For 70 years, they were slaves there. For 70 years, they were in that place. But in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and put it in writing. Well, let's back up. If you turn to the right a couple of books, you'll come to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah, a prophet who had uh, died prior to this time in Isaiah chapter 44. Isaiah gave a, a pretty cool prophecy. Isaiah 44, 28. 220 years before Cyrus. That's what Isaiah said. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall perform all my pleasure, saying to Jerusalem, you shall be built. And to the temple your foundation shall be laid. Isaiah, 220 years before Cyrus reigned as king, gave the prophecy that a guy named Cyrus, who's not even born yet, by the way, was going to tell the children of Israel they could go back. Seventy years is accomplished by the time we take a look at verse 22. And in verse 23, you have the proclamation. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, all the kingdoms of the earth 
the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, that's the proper name of God, Cyrus knew the Yahweh. He knew Jehovah God. The Lord God of heaven has given me. He has commanded me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. So who is among you all his people? May the Lord his God be with him and let him go up. Cyrus made a decree and told the people who were in captivity, Nebuchadnezzar's gone, he's died, the new kingdom, the Medo-Persian Empire has entered in. And Isaiah prophesied it 220 years before it happened. Named him by name. That's why I don't put a lot of stock in Gene Dixon and Nostradamus. Because they always seem to miss it by a letter or get it just not quite right. But 220 years before Cyrus is born, God called him out. 100 years before Josiah was born, God called him out. said, Josiah is coming. He's going to bring a revival. It will be the last one. Isaiah said, Cyrus is coming. And after the captivity, he's the guy who will let the children of Israel back into the land. And at the end of Second Chronicles, that's what happens. They come back. What's the point of the book? We've been looking at all the kings and their failures and their successes and their struggles. But there is always another opportunity. Now, 70 years later, the people are coming back. Ezra chapter 1 will start next week. The people are coming back to rebuild to rebuild the land that God had promised to them. They got another chance, another opportunity. The Bible tells in the book of Psalms that His mercies are new every morning. Every day, we get a new day. What are you going to do with tomorrow? How well did today go? We struggling with our walk and our talk, being who God's asking us to be, then we have a new opportunity every time the sun comes up and or the sun goes down to get a fresh start. Or we can just make excuses why we can't do it. But God's Word says, My mercy is new every morning. You got a chance. You have an opportunity to get it right. To do it right. To recognize the simple concepts. We, you, me, we are broken people. And Jesus Christ is the one who mends us. Who makes us whole. And He'll make us whole. Right now. Tomorrow. Anytime. We reach out and ask. And He'll do His work. Amen? Would you stand with me? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we just thank you for this time we have to open your word, to come to the end of the book of Chronicles, looking forward to the beginning of the book of Ezra, and seeing that God always has a remnant. He always has people who, no matter what happens, no matter what goes around, no matter what happens in their life, they are those who say, I will stand with the Lord. We are coming back to build. We're going to listen to His Word. We're going to follow Him. And so as we, uh, as we study and as we conclude this study, Lord, we just pray that our hearts would be turned toward You, that we would follow the example of those kings. Not that there was something special about those guys. They simply made a decision, a choice, to come unto God and ask God for the strength to make them complete, 
so they could be godly kings following after the Lord and their lives would be lived out in a way that would bring glory and honor unto you. Lord, we pray that that would be our heart to bring glory and honor to you, the way we live our life, that we would follow you in conjunction with your word and what your word teaches us, that we would glorify your name, God, that we would bring honor unto you, Lord, that we would recognize a new day, a new opportunity. Every morning, every day is a chance for us to glorify your name, to love you, to, to forsake our, our stuff, our garbage, our things, and just cling to you for all we're worth. And we will never be disappointed for having done that. Lord, we pray that you would be glorified in our lives as we live them out before you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.